0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the story of a song. We've done Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Light My Fire and Riders on the Storm by the Doors, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, and many others that you can hear at ouramericannetwork.org. And just click the button, Story of a Song, and you can listen to all of them. And now it's time for the story of a song that we all know Aretha Franklin's Respect. Here's Jesse.
1: Written by Otis Redding in 1965, it became Aretha Franklin's signature song and a number one hit by June of 67. It brought her two Grammy Awards in 1968 and quickly became the soundtrack for feminism and civil rights around the world. When I recorded it, uh, it was
2: pretty much a male-female thing and, and more in a general sense from person to person, uh, I'm going to give you respect and I'd like to have that respect back or I expect respect to be given back.
1: The original version was from a man's point of view. What you- After Otis Redding wrote the song for Speedo Sims, he decided to rewrite the lyrics and speed up the rhythm, recording it himself for his third album. Otis realized that he had a hit, and so did producer Jerry Wexler, who brought it to Aretha Franklin.
2: Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it, and my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and... um, piano by the window watching the cars go by and uh, we came up with that infamous line the socket to me line it was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It, was, it really was cliché.
1: The song was recorded on February 14th of 1967 in New York City's Atlantic Studios with Aretha behind the piano while using the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as the band. Franklin added lyrics where she demands her propers when she gets home. This is most likely the first reference of the term props in modern hip-hop terminology. That line there? TCB. TCB. It's an abbreviation commonly used in the 60s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. It's often misquoted as take out TCP or something similar because most music sheets include this incorrect line, possibly because people who transcribed Franklin's words from music sheets weren't familiar with the hip vernacular of the late 1960s. I- PCB was not present in Redding's original song, but were included in some of his later performances. At the Monterey Pop Festival, the same year Aretha Franklin's cover was released, Otis played the song live, saying that Aretha had taken it. This is another
3: one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love crowd. This our song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. <sighs> This girl, she just took this song, but I'm still going to do it anyway.
1: Tom Dowd was the engineer for the Aretha Franklin recording session. He worked for Atlantic Records, who had an arrangement with Stax, where Otis Redding recorded. Dowd worked with Redding, which led to Aretha's cover. I mean, he was under the influence of Sam Cooke and a lot of traditional blues artists
3: and gospel blues artists. But Otis had the song Respect, which was his expression of hardworking then southern black man <clears throat> coming home after a week at work and saying, "We're gonna dance, and I don't want to hear nothing about this and that, and they didn't mind those pin curls, and telling me you don't feel well, and this. We're gonna to dance tonight. We're gonna to party. Give me my dude Give me my respect." That was that was the significance of Otis' song, and it was a male macho work with me, Annie. Let's dance tonight, song. Okay. Um. Three, four years later, as we're doing the Aretha album, Aretha comes up with her version of the same song. But we're talking a transition period of three years, and where all of a sudden Aretha being such a powerful... Now, Otis was powerful as a man. Aretha was powerful as a woman. But times were changing. And here is an embryo women's lib black women's lib song where here comes this chick on strong instead of being the shrinking violet in the world no don't hit me no more just come on give me my propers when I get home R.E.S.P. and she tears the pants off the song it was the same song it was a hit both times it just depended which world you were living in which one you liked but damn it was a hot song
1: While Otis Redding's version peaked at number four for just one day in October of 1965, Aretha's version was number one for two weeks in June of 1967. Respect became an international hit, reaching number 10 in the UK, helping transform Franklin from a domestic star into an international sensation. This is Our American Stories. To hear more, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org.
0: This is our American Stories, and now it's time for our series, Energy is Life, where we explore the role of energy in our lives. We use energy almost every minute of every day, from cooking, heating, and cooling homes, to powering our devices, our transportation. It's essential to our daily living, and it always has been. Today, our very own Joey Cortez brings us a story of a little girl born with a devastating condition and rescued by fruits of the oil and natural gas industry.
4: You are first born. I was probably more terrified than my wife just because I wanted to, you really wanted to do it right.
5: That's Jason Stelzer, a Texan who worked as a teacher and would go on to work in the oil and gas industry, an industry that would unexpectedly help he and his wife after the birth of their daughter, Maddie.
4: Towards the end of the pregnancy, we went to the doctor a couple of times because she stopped moving. They didn't really know why, but they'd give my wife a Coke or something like that. And then the sugar would hit the kid, the kid would kick, and they'd say, all right, go home. You know, you're good. It happened like two or three times. And so they sent us for a 3D sonogram. We both took off on our lunch hours from teaching and went to the doctor to have this done. And the gal was sitting there reading the sonogram, and she goes, well, here's the head, and here's the feet, and your fluid is low, so you're having this baby a day. By eight o'clock that mm-hmm. night, we had a kid. It was pretty shocking, but when she was born, to put it lightly, her feet were jacked up, and one of the nurses kind of gasped. My wife couldn't see, and my wife kind of went, you know what, what's going on? And, and uh, she was born with what they called bilateral club feet. Basically, her, her left leg looked like a J. Her big toe pointed at her chin. They graded them, and, and I think her left foot on a scale of 1 to 20, 20 being the most severe, was a 20. Her right foot was like a 14 or something. Had we not lived in the United States, she wouldn't have walked, right? I mean, she just, she just wouldn't have walked. We were incredibly blessed in that we were referred to Texas Scottish Right Hospital for Children in Dallas.
5: And it's not just any children's hospital. This place has been a beacon of love and support since its founding. The hospital was founded by the Freemasons in 1921 to provide top-level medical care to children suffering from polio, regardless of their family's ability to pay. After polio was virtually eradicated in the U.S., the hospital broadened its focus, treating pediatric patients with all sorts of conditions and disorders, like the bilateral club feet Jason's daughter was born with.
4: Maybe two three weeks after she was born and we were in there for the first time, and they just said, yeah, we can fix it. Over the next year, they decided that they were gonna put her in these casts, and so you have this little kid in in these thigh-high casts, and they would manipulate her foot, you know, to where they wanted it, and they would cast it so that gradually the idea, and you get the idea, I mean, you're trying to reshape the limb, right? She's still growing, so it's pliable, and so we start that process, and, and the thing is, she just decided that she didn't like having them on. And so, literally, she would kick her way out of the casts. She would wiggle herself out of the casts. In one weekend, I think we went through three sets of casts. They glued them on. They put them at 90 degree angles and glued them on. And by the end of the day, she'd be out of it. I mean, the little kid had abs. She would literally pick her feet up, lay on her back, pick her feet up in the in the bed or whatever, and slam them down on the on the bed. She was just decided she was going to get out of them. So I think she was. I don't know. Maybe. Two, three months old, they decided to try to do a surgery to lengthen her Achilles tendon. And I think there were six adults in the room, and they couldn't pull it off. She just she would just wouldn't, wasn't going to let them. And the doctor said, we'll just have to wait till she's a year old, and we'll have to just have to do these surgeries. My wife, as hard-headed as she can be, said, there's got to be something different. My wife left the surgeon's office and went to the physical therapy lab and just said, hey, can you help me? She spent the next six, nine months, going there at least once a week, and they would stretch her, and they would tape her legs up, and they would put these little plastic boots on her, and then my wife would come home at night and, and watch the video of what they had done that day and, and would redo it every night, and that was our life, and that's what we did, you know, for that first year. It was every every night. That's It was at the end of the night where you put your kid to bed was, you know, stretch, tape, boot, and, and, and go to bed. My, my wife and the physical therapist They did this to the extent that when it came time for the surgery, the right foot was completely corrected and the surgery on the left foot was much, much less extreme than the doctor thought it would be. And he made the comment, he goes, wow, I I, I just didn't expect this. You know, and at the time, it was free. We didn't pay anything.
5: Maddie's treatment was free because the hospital covers whatever insurance wants. Made possible largely to the oil and gas industry. In 1964, the blakely Brannett Foundation, a former U.S. Senator, William Blakely, donated a ranch to the hospital, which shortly after became a bit of a controversy. Senator Blakely thought that the hospital should have promptly sold the ranch to immediately tend to more children. At the time, the ranch was valued at $60 million and generating oil and gas revenue of roughly $4 million a year roughly $33 million in today's dollars. Seems like a good reason to hang on to the property, and in hindsight, might have been the right call. Between 2011 and 2015, the ranch netted roughly a half billion dollars in royalties, benefiting countless families like Jason's and his daughter, Maddie.
4: A year old, we had the surgery, and my kid could wear shoes, two shoes for the first time. I took her to the hospital and got her last cast off, and she was just super proud of the fact that she got to wear a new pair of shoes. That was, for me, I'll remember forever. About five years old, she went to a theater camp. She loved it, and and she wanted to try out for a play that this little theater, local theater, was doing. And, and she was a year too young, but we asked them, hey, just let her, you know, just let her do it. And we realized she won't get the part. And, but you know, just give her the experience so she knows what it's all about. And she ended up with several parts and a singing solo. And this five-year-old kid's got like, I don't know, six or seven costume changes, and and she just got bit. I mean, that was it. That's what she wanted to do. She kept doing this theater thing, and she could just sing. And that was just that was the gift that God gave her. Meanwhile, she had had this thing with her foot, where and if you look, and you can look at her foot now, you know her. Where you and I are, when we run or we walk, our left foot kind of rolls, if you, know what that mean, if you know what I mean. You know, we can point our toes and do everything else. Well, she can't do that. But she was still, you know, singing and dancing in musicals and doing this kind of thing. And uh, look at her now, she's had roles and has even gotten an award from the local theater for being a featured dancer. A kid who wouldn't have walked in some cases got an award as, as being a featured dancer. And now we're at the point where, you know, she's a junior in high school. We're, The colleges we're looking at is that she wants to go and major in musical theater and major in vocal performance. The same thing I said that that, that day at 18 months old is, you know, God gives everybody an equalizer. She wasn't going to be the fastest runner. She wasn't, you know, ever going to be any kind of athlete because her physical build was not going to allow her to do that. But the equalizer she got was that voice, and that voice motivated her and and got her to a place for now where she's dancing and doing all other kind of stuff that we didn't ever think that was going to happen.
5: And now Maddie, grateful for her ability to walk and dance and her talent to sing, holds a Christmas event at the hospital every year called a Berry Merry Christmas, something Maddie and her family have been doing since she was in middle school.
4: She had a birthday party one year, and what she wanted to do is instead of giving presents to her, everybody bring a present for the kids at the hospital. And you know that's kind of how the Berry Merry Christmas all started. She was too young to volunteer, so you know, she had to do a service project for school and she came up with the idea, well, at Scottish Rite, when kids come in, especially when they're nervous or their surgery or of involved, they give those kids a teddy bears. So she said, well, what if I collect teddy bears and we take those up to the to the hospital and we can hand those out? By this time, she's gotten into where she's singing. And so right before Christmas, we started going to Scottish Rite. All the kids that were, you know, kind of inpatient care, they would bring them down in the lobby and I would play guitar and she would sing for those kids and then she would hand out teddy bears, and she would give the rest of the teddy bears to the hospital so they could give them out to the kids as they were coming in. And again, it's just because they do so much for, for people who you know who can't. I mean, we could pay, but there are so many people that can't that they get that care. So whatever you can do for a place like that, you have an obligation. In my view, that's what something God requires you to do. And you know, for those parents, I mean, we know that that's stressful and the fact that they, you know, the hospital could do something for those for them even to where it's less stressful on them and less stressful on the kids, I mean that's and that's awesome, you know. And if you get to be a part of it, all the better.
0: All the better and you're listening to Jason Stelzer and he's so right about God giving us gifts that are equalizers and also that we have a duty to do what we can and my goodness, what a story about the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children and how one grant from the energy business, one ranch, makes the difference day in and day out for families who can't afford pediatric care, families don't see bills there, and this grant and the money made from this gift, from the oil and energy business, has made a difference in many, many young people's lives. Jason Stelzer's story, his daughter Maddie's story, a life-changing story, here on Our American Stories. American stories. Much of what's been known about legendary NFL quarterback Brett Favre has been kept between the goalposts. So Greg Hengler took the three and a half hour long drive south from here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast this show and sat down with Brett in his Hattiesburg, Mississippi home. Here's Brett on tough love, telling the truth and having a parenting style that's different than his father's. And this is part two
6: of our five-part series. I coached two years of high school football, not because I wanted to. The head coach here at the high school, who I knew really well, kind of talked me into it. I I don't know, I don't really want to. It was the first year out of retirement. And I ended up loving it. But I, I felt like I was really tough on the kids. I didn't pick. My dad and the other coaches picked a lot. Uh, you big sissy. Not so much me. But and that, of course, at that time, that's all I knew. Now, and looking back, as a coach or as a, a person in that position doesn't have to be a coach; could be a teacher. I think our job is to mentor rather than pick. I mean, in some respects, it's like bullying to where some of those kids didn't even want to come around. And don't get me wrong, I would joke around with these kids, but I, it would always be in a playful manner. Um, and I knew that whoever it was could handle it. In fact, it may, it may even help with team mining. But I would be really demanding on what I knew they were capable of only because I, I knew what they were capable of. It's just like talking to your kids and you say, and, I'll, and I'm bouncing all around, but like my 20 year old daughter, and I use this example all the time, like first or second year of American Idol, we're in Green Bay and I'm studying, but we got American Idol on and, and we love watching And I don't know if it was when the show was over and she's probably eight. She comes over and she said, Dad, I want to try out for American Idol. What do you think? I said, no. She said, why? I said, you can't sing. I said, you're terrible. And I was just telling her the truth. I said, trust me. If I let you try out, someday you're going to say, what were you thinking? And I knew what she's capable of. And... I mean, she's, she's a smart kid. She, if she wanted to be a doctor, she could. She wants to be a lawyer, she could. Um, but she's not gonna be a rocket scientist. And I, th- I think as a, as a coach, I demanded what I thought they were capable of, of achieving. And I felt like if they were not, there's a reason for it. Not studying, not paying attention in practice. But when they did well or did something that I'd been trying to coach them to do, I would reward them. I'd hug them, put my arm around them. Great job. And that's where my dad lacked. When you did something right, it was you are supposed to do it that way. He didn't say anything. No. damn, About damn time. Mm-hmm. You know, something that like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I knew. And I was determined that... I didn't think I'd ever coach, but if I did, that I would, I would build them up as well. I mean, it's all right to get on their, ass, but they got to know that when they do well, that you love them. The same can be said for, for life. Like my dad, and I, I, I don't, I don't say this with any regret because I don't. But he never told us he loved us. But again, he was that was his. You know, I don't think any drill sergeant at the end of the day says, "I really love you guys." He may say it in a or a, a, a joking manner, like, "Now get your ass out and give me." So my mom, of course, was kind of the caregiver. Told you she loved you, and oh Don't worry about your dad. But then when he walked in the room, it, you know. It was all, it was tough, tough love. And I didn't have, I was determined if I had boys, I would tell them I loved them as much as possible. Now I had two girls and I told them I loved them. And dad, I know, I know you don't have to tell me, but tell them over and over again. Um, Now, am I a perfect parent? Absolutely not, but um, my dad was—I don't know if it was the way they were raised. I'm sure part of it was. My grandfather was real mellow, but he was up in. The, people change, you know, and you, you know people maybe your own family members that, like, you're not just the tough guy that you once were. You know, maybe with the grandkids, like, where was that when I was a kid? So. Going back to my dad, when I had Brittany and Breely, he he didn't want to spend very much time with them. He didn't have patience. Kids running around screaming. He'd, he'd start yelling, and then I'd have to yell at him, and then it was just, a, it was bad. Um, but, you know, like I told people, he, I knew he loved me, us, he didn't have to say it now, as I got older, I understood it more and more, sometimes through his yelling and screaming, that was his way of it's kind of like saying well you you're supposed to be able to do that you know good you know good job, but hell, that's what I've been coaching you do That was his way of saying, "Awesome that was just the way it was, and again, it drove me. And I don't even know what I was being driven by. I, you know, it, it, maybe I was, it was dr- driving me, you know, like I'll get him to say nice job, I'm proud of you without even knowing it. But it's funny when he would come up to Green Bay, he'd retire and I, this is more, just kind of a fun, funny exchange between us, but he would get in the truck after the game be a good game, let me tell you. Well, you'd have completed 30, 30 if you'd have th- thrown 30 more better passes. And I'm like, look, for someone who never threw the ball, don't tell me how to throw. And he just shut up. I mean, there was nothing he could say. I, you know, I mean, it, 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 was, it was the truth. Why'd you miss that read? I'm like, I I don't even want to hear it. You never coached me one thing about reading. It was hitting a tackling dummy and doing monkey rolls, and you know, which I, I wouldn't trade it. It worked out, but don't tell me how to throw. But up until the end, I mean, he was determined to coach me up now all of a sudden he's going to coach me up on this, the ins and outs of the passing game. and all. He didn't know shit from Shinola when it came to the passing game.
0: And you're listening to Brett Favre talking about his dad who was his coach when he was in high school and they never threw the ball. Brett was running, well, a lot of running plays and getting in shape and organizing his life around a running game coach, his dad, and a tough old guy you know a lot of old dads were like that that's just how it was and here's Brett Favre lamenting remembering and trying to improve upon what his father passed on to him in the best way he knows how and we're going to continue if you'd like to hear more on Brett Favre's life this is part two of a five-part series go to ouramericannetwork.org and just go on that search bar and put in the name Brett Favre and it'll pop up Brett Favre's story, this one about his father, about parenting, about love and discipline, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about love, death, music, sports, work, every sphere of American life. And we especially love to hear your stories. And make sure you go to americannetwork.org and write to us with your story, and we'll help you record it. And today's story is brought to us by Dana Misch, and she shares with us a piece of her family's story, a piece that occurred at Buchenwald, one of the very first Nazi concentration camps And the largest one on German soil. And it's a story that she shared in the publication The Times of Israel, and she graciously recorded it for us. Here's Dana.
7: A few months ago, I stood at Buchenwald in a large open field that was covered in an endless expanse of rocky gray gravel. The ground that I gazed at before me was where the barracks once had been. On that unnaturally humid and sunny afternoon, thunder ominously clapped from heavy storm clouds that loomed off in the distance. The skies certainly echoed my state of mind. As for anyone that visits a concentration camp, it was a particularly sobering and gut-wrenching experience. But for me, it was more than just emotional. It was personal. Why was I there? To learn about my grandfather, who had stood on that very ground some 78 years prior, and reconnect with his life, his journey, his story. The morning after Kristallnacht, at the age of 25, my grandfather was arrested by the SS and taken to Buchenwald as a part of the special pogrom, the first ever mass deportation and internment of Jews at that camp. He arrived on November 13th, 1938, before the barracks were even built, and for three or four days and nights, He waited among 10,000 other Jews in the freezing winter rain to receive a roof over his head and a 20-centimeter-wide wooden sleeping plank. Many who were there with him during that time didn't survive, and I will always remember the tears that came to my grandfather's eyes in the video interview we have of him, as he hesitatingly rehashed the horrors that befell those around him, frequently and at random. He was one of all too few who was miraculously able to flee Germany during the Holocaust, and I owe my life to his luck. But his journey wasn't over when he got to the United States. Mere weeks after officially becoming an American, he was drafted into the army. He was shipped off to Europe, back into the eye of the storm, just five years after his time at Buchenwald. And as a soldier in a replacement depot, despite only having gone through basic training, no infantry training, he was nevertheless thrown into combat during the Battle of the Bulge. He fought against the Nazis with the ultimate goal of invading his homeland and, yet again, narrowly lived to tell the tale. He ended up living a very full life. He passed away in 1999 at the age of 85, when I was just 11 years old. But as for my return to Buchenwald, it was actually another more recent death in the family that served as the catalyst. By the time I stood on the same ground that my grandfather had this past September, my father had been gone from us for nine months. He was my grandfather's firstborn, and he had wanted to be able to share his dad's heroic story with the world. So my visit, both to Buchenwald and also afterward to my grandfather's hometown, was to remember the two of them. My grandfather's persistence, and my own father's admiration. It was to pay homage to the sacrifices they made, and the pride they held in raising a family, in continuing our lineage. The reasons behind my journey ebbed and flowed in my mind as I read a passage that was embedded in stone amongst the gray gravel I stood on at the camp. It read, So that the generations to come might know, the children yet to be born, that they too may rise and declare to their children. As a member of the third generation of Holocaust survivors in the U.S., this struck a chord with me. Living now at a distance, both across generations and oceans, from the horrible tragedy that resulted from Hitler's Nazi regime, I had always felt somewhat detached from it. In fact, few of my friends knew the extent of my grandfather's story. That is, until I recently chose to rise and declare it. And now, as my own father's firstborn, carrying forward his lineage, it's something that I too am committed to rising and declaring for future generations as well. There's something sacred about the kind of cycle created by generations, which is really just to say, people that share a heritage over time. And in Judaism, we observe these sacred cycles that connect us with our earliest ancestors in one way the most, through the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In that light, it should come as no surprise that the name of the book that we use on these holidays, the Mahzor, shares the same root with the Hebrew word for return, Chazarah. We reliably return to these traditions, thus completing a sacred cycle to remind us of all that we have inherited and all that we will carry forward. When distilled down to their roots, that's what Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are all about, respectively, remembering and thinking back on our past and looking into the future. As I stood at Buchenwald several months ago, on the ground that held all that it did, my present moment joined together the history that came before me and my future yet to come. Through that return I made into a difficult past, one that altered destinies and set my own life into motion so many years ago, I began a kind of intergenerational remembering. But I also felt that I began a kind of healing, Because in that moment, I realized that even though my grandfather and father were both gone, I still carried parts of them within me that I would perpetuate into the future. This year, my hope is that we can all make our own important returns, whether they're on foot or in our minds. Because when we seek out the source of who we are, we end up moving forward into the new year with the two things that have always kept us firmly rooted remembrance,
0: and hope. And thank you for that, Dana. And in her story, Dana mentioned a video interview of her grandfather, and we asked her about it, and she said it was done by the Shoah Foundation, a group founded by Steven Spielberg, to capture video interviews with survivors and witnesses of Shoah, the Hebrew term to describe the Holocaust. And their work has since expanded into documenting many more genocides. In total, they've captured a whopping 55,000 video testimonies. Here's a clip from their interview with Dana's granddad, Arthur Hecht, who was 83 years old at the time and recalled his time at Buchenwald.
3: They had roll calls, you know, we had to stand outside. And in front of you, left and you, right of you, in back of us, they were killing people. You have no idea how. You have no idea, with spades, with... You have no idea. That I pulled through was just a miracle. And here's one
0: more clip of Arthur talking about why the Nazis allowed him to leave the concentration camp in its early days.
3: Only because I could leave Germany. At that time, when you could leave Germany, they let you out. And I had to sign... That I leave within four weeks or three weeks, I leave to Germany. If not, I go back to the, to the concentration camp again.
0: Leaving wouldn't be an option later on. It's estimated that 240,000 prisoners went through Buchenwald. And 56,545 died there. A death rate of 24%. 8,483 of them were shot dead. 1,100 were hanged. One hundred and fifty four died from being used as human experiments, ranging from testing vaccines to determining the precise fatal dose of a poison. Two Austrian priests were crucified upside down. These are realities that most of us are unaware of. We know of these concentration camps as among the darkest moments in human history, but we don't truly know their stories and the stories of the people who were there. And here on Our American Stories, we're committed to telling those stories. The Americans who are here because of some of the great heroic things that happened, some just by luck, and also some of the memories of people who, well, didn't survive. All of it here on Our American Stories. And thanks to Dana Mish and the Shoah Foundation for sharing the Hex family story. And if you want to see two great documentaries... The Sorrow and the Pity and Shoah are outstanding. They're highly recommended here from this show. Again, thanks to Dana and her family. Their story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and our favorite subject is music And our second favorite is history, and this next, well, this next hour combines both with one of America's very best cultural writers and one of our best music writers. He's written a beautiful biography of Louis Armstrong called Pops. But today we're here to talk to Terry Teachout about the book Duke, The Life of Duke Ellington, who was born in Washington, D.C. in 1899. Terry, thanks for joining us. Talk about where Duke Ellington was born And he was born, of course, in 1899 in Washington, D.C. Talk about the effect and the impact that location had on his life.
8: Washington, D.C., in Ellington's childhood and youth, was one of the most ruthlessly segregated cities in America. It was, you might say, the northern tip of the Deep South. But it had a large, healthy, prosperous black middle class, a black bourgeoisie at the same time. That is what defines the Washington of Ellington's youth and the neighborhood he grew up in, U Street. It was a place where you lived, if you could afford to, and in the alley, if you couldn't afford to, where every kind of black person, well-to-do and poor, striving and desperate, they were all thrown together. It was tremendously vital. But it it was a society that in its own class divisions mirrored the class divisions of the white world. There was a racial caste system among blacks. Uh, It had to do with economics. It also had to do with skin color. And Duke Ellington came from light-skinned parents, parents who had white blood in them. Uh, His mother had a senator uh, in her heritage. And this put them several rungs up the ladder, So you had a society of strivers, but you also had a society of people who were very self-conscious about their place in class. It might have looked on from the outside. Ellington's father was considered pretty far up on, on the ladder of success because he was the butler of a white doctor. And so he acquired class identity and a a patina of of elegance uh, from this very affiliation. And it's something I think that Ellington himself may have had equivocal feelings about. On the one hand, he was himself very class conscious. uh, And he was a person who was inclined for his black friends to be people with light skin. And for his mistresses to be women with light skin. At the same time, though, he believed deeply in the self-improvement ethos. Uh, that is why he was determined to make something of himself, something important. His mother had told him right from the beginning of his life, you you are gifted, you are special, you are going to do remarkable things. And Ellington never doubted her.
0: Well, actually, she used the word Ellingtonian exceptionalism.
8: <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> she was dead serious about it. And... Uh, Freud said that that a boy who has the absolute approval of his mother is destined for success. If that's true, uh, Duke Ellington had the pedigree going in. And good for him. Let's get now to Duke Ellington's musical journey.
0: Tell us about that.
8: Usually, you become interested in music because you hear it and it's beautiful and you you become transported by it and then you start to think, well, maybe I could do that, maybe I could make that. But with Ellington, it seems to have been the actual act of performance of getting his hands on the keyboard and hearing the kind of music he wanted to play that excited him. He'd taken a few piano lessons as a child from a woman named, believe it or not, Clink Scales. Uh, It's a true story. We had to track that down in the census records, but it's absolutely true. But they didn't stick with him uh, because she wasn't teaching him what he wanted to hear. It was when he heard Ragtime and a little bit later, early jazz that he heard a kind of music that spoke to him. And he came back to the piano. He started playing with it, tinkering with it, realized that he could play it. And that was when it all began. And from what I understand,
0: Terry, Ellington found some inspirations early on that greatly influenced him. Who was Harvey Brooks? Tell us a bit more about him.
8: Harvey Brooks was, I I believe, based in Philadelphia. He was a late ragtime, early stride pianist. He's not well-remembered today because he didn't make very many recordings. But he did make piano rolls. Ellington heard one early on. Being from a a family of the black bourgeoisie, Ellington was not the sort of person who was likely to grow up hearing ragtime or that kind of popular music that was going around at the time. When he heard Harvey Brooks, he was stunned by how exciting the music was and how personal, how individual it was, how a personality was projected through the playing. He was determined to learn how to make that kind of music. That was really what what pushed the button uh, that made Ellington want to be a musician. He had originally intended to be an artist, uh, a commercial artist, and he had real talent in that that area. But when he heard this kind of music and realized that you could go out on a bandstand, play music like that, people would hear it and know it was you, and uh, that women would flock around the bandstand because they found that very sexy. And, of course, he discovered very quickly that it wasn't just a matter of his being interested, that he also had innate talent for it. And it was Harvey Brooks who who started him down that line, so much so that Ellington actually sought him out a couple of years later, and Brooks showed him some of the tricks of the trade. And he makes his way up to New York, and this is as the budding of the great Harlem Renaissance
0: is, well, it's it's about to come, but how does he make his way to New York, and what role did the uh, 1919 race riots in Washington play in that, if any.
8: The race riots of 1919 had an overwhelming effect on, on Washington, D.C. Uh, they were violent. They were shocking. They caused a lot of black people to realize just how fragile their lives were. And it, it seems impossible that they wouldn't have had that kind of effect on Ellington. He had already been hearing musicians from outside Washington. He knew there was more to the music that interested him, the music that excited him, than he was hearing in Washington. And he must also have realized that if you wanted to get somewhere, if you wanted to be more than just a famous local musician, at this point in the history of jazz, you were going to have to come to New York. And when we come back, more with
0: Terry Teachout and the story of Duke Ellington... And the book is Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. And you can get it at Amazon and all the usual suspects. Or heck, go to a bookstore. Duke Ellington's story continues here on Our American Story. continue here with Our American Stories and Terry Teachout on the life of Duke Ellington. Talk about the importance of the Roaring Twenties. Ellington came of age during that decade, and it was a time of great freedom in so many respects. Talk about that.
8: The Roaring Twenties are a, a cliché. They're movies. They're scenes in TV shows. We have this idea of what they were like. But the cliché was true. The country was completely turned inside out by prohibition and the resulting lawlessness that that's stemmed from it, by the sense of personal freedom that people sought, especially uh, men coming back from the First World War, coming back from Europe. You remember the song, How You Gonna Keep them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris? Well, that was what the Roaring Twenties meant to people. They wanted a larger life, one that had fewer Restrictions, fewer limitations. They wanted excitement. Many of them wanted city life and the things that only a city can provide. It is in cities that jazz came to be because they had dance halls and they had cabarets and they had bars and they had gangsters who wanted music to be played while they were selling their illegal liquor. And it was just the word ferment. I don't mean the pun. There was a tremendous cultural ferment going on right then. Not just in music, but in every form of art. And America became a major center for this ferment. We had major visual artists. We had major novelists. We had major classical composers. And we had, of course, the distinctive form of music that gives its name to the period jazz. If you weren't stimulated by that, then there was nothing in you to be stimulated. And Ellington was stimulated to the highest degree by this freedom. He, as we talked about earlier, was brought up as part of the black bourgeoisie. He believed in the appearance of respectability, but he also wanted to lead a wider, freer life. And the 20s were the best time in the world, maybe in the history of America, to have been able to do that. He was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing.
0: Let's talk about the Cotton Club and its connection to Ellington's rise to prominence. And by the way, your description of the place itself, Terry, it could be its own book. I mean, (laughs) I was just enthralled.
8: Well, it was quite a joint, uh, and it it was produced by racial segregation. In Harlem, there were a number of clubs that did not admit blacks they were entertainers they were waiters they were part of the staff but they couldn't come in as customers they were places where white people from downtown who had money to burn came up to entertain themselves uh, to to discover this new exotic music called jazz the cotton club was probably the best known of these places decorated in the style of a plantation what a horrible irony To have gotten that gig was a big deal for Ellington, not just because it was a high-profile gig, but because suddenly he was playing every night at a club where his band had to supply a lot of music, not just uh, songs, not just original pieces, but music for dancing, music for floor shows. Suddenly, Duke Ellington had to produce. He was on the spot. And uh, the Cotton Club took what he produced And made it known to New Yorkers with money who talked about it and wrote about it. He first got into print in The New Yorker for performing at the Cotton Club. And uh, he made records of the music that he played there. And of the highest importance, he broadcast on network radio from there. It was one of the biggest breaks of his life when CBS installed a broadcast wire to the Cotton Club in 1929. Up to this moment, Duke Ellington, he'd been making records for some time. He was known to jazz aficionados. But suddenly, all you had to do to hear Duke Ellington at his very best was turn your radio on at night, and there he was. He called this his biggest break, and I think he was absolutely right to say so. It was what made him, in a single stroke, a national figure. And a black national figure. There had not been black bands with this kind of exposure on network radio. Remember, too, this is in 1929, when suddenly there's no money. It's the Great Depression. The bottom falls out of the record business because people can't afford to buy records. But you could afford to listen to the radio because it didn't cost anything. That was what made Ellington a star. Louis Pasteur said, chance favors the prepared mind. And Duke Ellington's mind was very much a prepared mind when he went into the Cotton Club in 1929. It forced him to work harder as a composer. It really tested his mettle,
0: but he passed the test. Let's talk about the music. Ellington didn't compose like other composers, and you got into it a bit before. I want to dig in a little bit more Clark Terry, in your book, said that Ellington was, quote, a compiler of deeds and ideas with a great facility to make something out of what could possibly or would possibly be nothing. Talk about that, Terry. And he didn't give his guys, at least it seems to me, nearly enough credit, which something it's something that guys like Frank Sinatra always did, was thank Gordon Jenkins and thank the writers, the Harold and the
8: and the Gershwins, Um, Talk about all of that, if you could. To put it in the nastiest possible way, Duke Ellington was a credit hog. He's not the only genius who was. Orson Welles was exactly the same kind of credit hog, and their creative processes were quite strikingly similar. Ellington was not like a classical composer. A classical composer is somebody who sits down at the piano if he uses a piano to compose, and he writes a piece of music, and then he brings it to the orchestra or the opera company or the string quartet and they perform it. Maybe he revises it, but basically what he wrote is what they perform. Ellington didn't compose that way, because he didn't have the technical grounding that you get from classical training. In the early years, he also had a band full of people, some of whom were very poor sight readers, and Ellington himself, as we said, was not a good sight reader. But Ellington had an interesting deficiency as a composer. He did not have the knack of tunefulness, He wasn't good at writing singable melodies. When you're leading a dance band, and to a great extent your success is reliant on pieces in song form that can become hits, it can become an impediment to your writing. On the other hand, he had put together a band full of hand-picked musicians picked by him. These highly original, idiosyncratic musicians, who were often quite difficult to work with, he spent a fair amount of time bailing people out of jail and getting them out of trouble. And the reason why he did this was because they inspired him, not just in that generalized sense of, oh, what a great artist, he makes me want to write better. He was with them every night, every day, on the road at the Cotton Club, and they were constantly improvising. And some of them, Johnny Hodges in particular, were extraordinarily good at making up melodies and melodic fragments, and Ellington was listening. And he would write them down. What he liked to do best was, if you played a a snatch of melody that he liked, He'd buy it from you for cash on the spot. And, of course, what he was buying was the total rights to this. He was buying publishing rights. He was buying credit, the whole thing. Jazz musicians don't tend to think ahead about this kind of thing, you know? They play it. They toss it off. They've got a million of them. If Duke says likes this piece, he'll buy it. Okay, fine. You know, I'll take 25 bucks for it. And then he turns it into a song. And not infrequently, the song would become a hit. Almost without exception... The famous songs, I'm not talking about the compositions, the melodies came from musicians, not from him. What would usually happen is that they would play eight bars that stuck in his head, he'd buy it, he'd add a bridge, he'd harmonize it, Uh, he'd turn it into a composition, he'd record it. At a later stage, he might have somebody put lyrics to it. And unless the musician had been very shrewd about retaining rights, all of the proceeds from that hit went to Ellington. So the process, it's, it's not right to call it plagiarism. That word simply doesn't apply here. Something more complicated is going on. It is a collective process of composition, very similar to the way that a movie gets made. You have a director and he may be the prime mover of the film, but the producer might be the prime mover of the film. And what about the screenwriter? What about the cinematographer? Uh, who gets credit for the total effect of the thing? Duke Ellington gets and deserves total credit for the total effect of the pieces that his band played, but he was not totally responsible for them. He didn't like to talk about this aspect of his compositional process, and you can see why. There's a certain kind of genius who wants you to think that he does everything equally well. Ellington was that kind of genius. And when we
0: come back, we'll continue with this remarkable insight into one of America's great musical talents. We're talking to Terry Teachout, and we're talking about Duke Ellington and his life. And by the way, go to Amazon.com and get the book, Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. It's superb. When we come back, we'll continue here on Our American Stories with Duke Ellington's story. continue here with our american stories and terry teacho on the life of duke ellington now we've been discussing up till now a very complicated character let's talk about his secrets
8: because he kept a lot terry ellington was a person who liked to keep his private life very private and he had good reasons for that he was living with mistresses throughout his pretty much the whole of his adult life, even though he remained married to the woman he married back in the twenties. He was leading the life of a voluptuary he was leading a, a life that would have scandalized many people uh, had they heard about it. I think this this habit of secrecy spread outward to his whole life. he certainly wanted to keep his compositional process secret because there were aspects of it that were trade secrets and there were other aspects of it that I think he would have found embarrassing. The fact that he was much more a collaborative artist than he cared for uh, the public to realize. When you get into the habit of keeping secrets, uh, whether you're a, an artist or a spy, it's something that can really spread throughout every aspect of your personality. And I think that's that's what it was with Duke. He just got into the habit of not telling people the truth. It was easier to manipulate them that way. It was easier for his image to come across in the way that he wanted it to come across. And by the end of his life, he'd been doing it for so long that it was simply his custom. Indeed, and I sensed as I read the book and all through the book, that I'm not sure if Duke knew whether he was telling the truth or not. Well, I think with some of his set pieces, he may well have forgotten how they got their their origins when he would tell stories about how he wrote a particular piece of music stories that had absolutely nothing to do with the fact of the matter. It's possible that 20 years down the line, he didn't remember. But also bear in mind that he was telling these stories to, to keep his privacy, to keep secrets. And when you're doing it for a reason, you tend to know what the truth is, because the truth is what you're trying not to tell people. Let's talk about In a Sentimental Mood. Um, talk about that song, because there was
0: the Ellington story of how it was written, and then perhaps the more truthful one.
8: Yes, he had his little tale for that one as as he often did for the really popular numbers. If memory serves, he claimed to have written it when he had a woman sitting two different women, one sitting on either end of the piano bench with him, and uh he wrote that song on the spot to get over with both of the ladies. Uh, that's a lovely tale. he's not beyond it. Something like that might conceivably have happened. But he left out the most important part, which is that the melody of the song came from somebody else. It came from Oto Hardwick, the lead saxophone player of the band. So if he was composing that song on the spot to get over with the two ladies, uh, he was composing it with somebody else's tune. That's a very characteristic form of Ellingtonian obfuscation, I would say. And yet, many of the songs that he wrote... He had these little vignettes about what the songs meant or how they got written. And when somebody has that kind of habit, it's again, it's telling you something. In Illington's case, it's telling us something that we know about him in other ways as well, which is that his music is profoundly autobiographical. So it it stands to reason that he would like to make up these little fables, because whether they were true or not, They did speak to a larger truth, which is that something like that was the way his mind
0: worked. Let's talk about his London trip, because it was an important one. His two-week run at the Palladium shocked him and his band. He said this was a night that scared the devil out of the whole band. The applause was so terrifying. It was applause beyond applause, Ellington said. Talk about that London experience, because it it was a real boost to both he and his bandmates.
8: Ellington was fairly famous by the time he went to London. But he was famous in a way that a black man would be famous in America in the 30s. A way that is somewhat limited. The whole racial caste system in this country meant that he was not seen as an artist, but as an entertainer, even though he saw himself as an artist. So he goes over to London and suddenly, very suddenly, uh, that opening night suddenly... He completely overwhelms an audience that has never heard his band live. They've never heard anything like this. There had been some jazz played in Europe, but the Ellington band was, I think, peculiarly well-designed to appeal to an unusually wide range of of critics and, and aficionados in London at that time, because it was a kind of orchestra, that played not just improvised solos, but compositions. So you had a whole lot of classical musicians of real distinction over there who were quite stunned by it and who insisted when they wrote about it that it was in its way equivalent to the best classical music that was coming out of America. That was a very, very big thing for a black man to hear and to be told at that time. This was a man who, at this point in his life, was going from gig to gig in private cars on a train, which sounds very fancy when I say it, but he did that because you couldn't get a hotel in the South if he were black. And suddenly, he goes to London, and he's being treated like a kind of prince, like the genius that he was, and he is also able to stay in the best hotels. It's the total experience of going into this larger, freer world that overwhelmed him at a time when he really needed this kind of of creative spurt. It thrilled him. No matter how gifted you are, you need praise. No matter how gifted you are, you need to be complimented. You need success. You need people to tell you what you're doing is worthwhile. And if you're a black man in America in the 30s, you need a lot of that because you're dealing with a whole lot of, of evil and foolishness. And he goes over there and this happens to him. And he comes back with with his account full of, of the coin of praise, intelligent praise, thoughtful praise. He lived off that for a very long time.
0: And he also said this about staying in a real luxury hotel in England. He said, you know, I love this place. I don't know if you realize this, but I have the utmost difficulty staying in a hotel like this in the United States. And Terry, that just broke my heart. It
8: really hit home. Can't you hear him saying that? in that elegant, urbane voice of his, to say, I have the utmost difficulty staying in a hotel like this in the United States. And he's trying to say it with a wry smile, but he's kidding on the square. He means it. He means it.
0: And it seems to me, Terry, that there's a lot of masking going on here. Talk about that, because it's such a big part of Ellington's life and it's such a painful part.
8: Well, this is when when we were talking early about uh, earlier about how Ellington spoke to conceal himself. I think one of the things that he didn't want people to see was the hurt he wanted them to feel that he was above such things, wouldn't you if if you were somebody like Duke Ellington, you'd been raised by him, you'd been raised by your mother to believe in the doctrine of Ellingtonian exceptionalism. And you go out in the world and you start to have great success and people write magazine articles about you. But you go down south and they treat you the same way that they treat every other person who has a black skin. You know that hurts. Of course he concealed it. He had to conceal it. He concealed it behind the mask of urbanity. He didn't want people to know that they got his goat.
0: And for good reason. You've been listening to Terry Teachout on the life of Duke Ellington and my goodness, this book, Duke, you can get it at Amazon, folks. I couldn't put it down. My, my poor wife had to lose me for a few days, and that's on you, Terry. But my goodness, read this book, because it is a combination of history and music. And my goodness, you'll learn a lot about racial history in this country, and it's painful, and it's tragic. But you'll also learn a whole lot about musical genius and the complex character that is Duke Ellington. By the way, he was not seen as an artist by the world and probably by himself until he got to London, where, my goodness, the critics and the fans knew what they were seeing. And he wasn't just some entertainer, folks. He's one of the giants of American music. And when we come back, more with Terry Teachout and the life of Duke Ellington here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories and the life of Duke Ellington with Terry Teachout. Now, Terry, after World War II, the big band scene had lost a lot of steam, and Ellington did too. But one concert changed all of that, the 1956 Newport Jazz Festival. Talk about this gig that changed everything.
8: If you like stories, this is one of the best of all possible Ellington stories, what happened in 1956. The Ellington band had gone through this protracted decline. It had lost important personnel. Things had become increasingly difficult. But Ellington started to get a handle on things in 1956. He stabilized the personnel of the band, and he hired a drummer, Sam Woodyard, who really suited that band. That was a pretty hard band to pull sometimes. And Woodyard, he was not a polished artist, but he had the energy and the forthrightness that could really... uh, put wheels under the Ellington van. The critics started to notice this. The press started to notice this. Time magazine noticed this, and they got interested in maybe doing a big story about Ellington, maybe doing a comeback story that would go on the cover. But you don't get on the cover of Time and back then, unless you had a news hook. This is where Ellington got very, very lucky. By 1956, the Newport Jazz Festival had become a big deal in American jazz. Uh, George Ween was the man who put it together. And he was quite reluctant to bring Ellington in, because although he admired Ellington, everybody in jazz did. He thought that Ellington was kind of uh, yesterday's news. So a deal was struck between Ween and George Avakian, the great record producer at Columbia and Ellington. Ellington agreed to compose a new composition that will be named after the festival, the Newport Jazz Festival Suite. And Columbia agrees to record it live at the 1956 festival. So the deal was struck. They sign it. Ellington and the band comes in. And the Ellington band was full of extremely temperamental people. Almost half the band didn't show up for the rehearsal. They were very bad about rehearsing pieces. Ellington was very bad about getting pieces written on time so that they could be rehearsed. So they come in for this gig, and everybody knows it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Ellington's reputation could rest on this. And the temperamental gentlemen of the Ellington band foul up the rehearsal. Well, everybody is really anxious about this. And they go on that night, and they play the Newport Jazz Festival suite. And it's it's all right, but it wasn't anything great. The band's kind of all over the place. George Wayne, no doubt, is is sitting in his seat thinking, oh boy, did I make a mistake. And at this point, Duke Ellington dealt himself a handful of aces. He had a tenor saxophone player in the band named Paul Gonzalez, not a refined player anymore than Sam Woodyard was refined. But boy, could he blow, and he really liked to blow the blues. And Ellington had been, he'd taken a, piece out of his book from the 30s called Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue which was a six minute piece of, consisting of blues choruses in different keys and in the middle of it Ellington had started to insert what he called a wailing interval which would just be Gonzalez standing up in front of the rhythm section and playing the blues for as long as he wanted to play it. and he tried this out on the road and it was it was having good effects and he thought well okay I gotta do something here because otherwise we're gonna screw this gig up So he calls diminuendo and crescendo in blue, kicks it off, and we can hear all this because of course it was recorded, and suddenly the band is shifted into high gear. Gonzalez comes down front, and he plays 27 straight choruses of the blues, and the crowd goes not just wild, but they were dancing, they were yelling and screaming. And Ellington's up there playing piano. He's in, he's in hog heaven. He knows that he's got this going. The rhythm section is, is blazing. Gonzalez drives everybody absolutely into a frenzy. The band comes back in and plays the piece out. And the phrase, they stopped the show, is often used in exaggeration in my business as a theater critic. But believe me, they stopped that show. They stopped it cold. They stopped it so cold that they couldn't get any other group on and that they had to bring Johnny Hodges on to play one of his specialties, a slow blues, just to calm everybody down. And they got it all on tape. So Time Magazine, they're in ecstasy. Suddenly they realize they've got a story and they put Duke Ellington on the cover. This guy who had had been thought to be over the hill. Meanwhile, Columbia releases Ellington at Newport and it becomes an instant success with this long, long, long version of diminuendo and a crescendo in blue. And suddenly, Duke Ellington was not yesterday's news anymore. He was on the cover of Time magazine, which in 1956 was the biggest possible deal for any artist in terms of public recognition. And for the rest of the 50s and well into the 60s, the Ellington band lived off the publicity and the boost in their reputation that came from this amazing gig, an opportunity that they came within inches of letting slip through their fingers.
0: Indeed. Let's talk about recognition. Uh, The Pulitzer Prize, Uh, it's something that haunted Ellington.
8: Why? The Pulitzer Prize for music was organized to recognize classical composers. It doesn't have to be given in any given year. And in 1965, the music panel, decided that there had been no piece of classical music, no individual piece that was worthy of the prize. They decided instead to recommend to the board that Ellington be presented with a special citation for long-term achievement. But in 1965, the board hi-hats him. He doesn't deserve the award. Now, Ellington handled himself with colossal elegance. He was on the road. He was actually down in Kentucky. And a reporter said, do you have any comment? And Ellington said, and again, imagine this in that urbane voice of his. He said, fate's being kind to me. Fate doesn't want me to be too famous too young. Well, that's all very well and good. But in fact, it just cut him to the quick. And he was outraged. He was angry, but he was angry because it hurt This was something that, especially in the 60s, when, remember, rock has become big in the 60s, and the energy that that Ellington got from the firing of the Afterburners in 1956 is now starting to dispel. Suddenly, tastes in popular music are changing greatly. He had all sorts of reasons for wanting that kind of recognition that being the first jazz musician to win a Pulitzer Prize would have brought him, and he didn't get it. I don't think he ever quite got over that. It's not the sort of thing that a man like Duke Ellington would have gotten over. And it's just too damn bad because, you know, he was bigger than any prize. He was bigger than any award. But he was human. He was only human. You can only take so much hurt. And that got him. It got him where he lived. Let's talk about the Medal of Freedom because he did
0: get that. But that's more of a political award. It's not the Pulitzer But he got that in 69,
8: did that help? Richard Nixon was president in 1969. He wasn't a jazz buff, but he actually did like music and knew something about it. And he had assistants in his office who knew a lot about it. And it was thought that, for whatever reason, it was thought that giving Ellington the Medal of Freedom in 1969 was not only something that he deserved, but that something that would be, shall we say, politic. And no matter what your politics are, and there were a lot of people who hated uh, Richard Nixon in 1969, just as there are now, but he was the president. And this was a very big deal, a very big deal. Ellington accepted with the utmost delight. They had the most amazing party. Uh, Richard Nixon actually played uh, Happy Birthday for Duke on piano that night. There are a lot of press accounts of the party. And every time you read about it, you thought, oh, boy, I would have liked to have been there. But could it possibly have been as good as uh, as they said it was?
0: Let's talk about the end of Duke Ellington's life, Terry. What happened? And what do you think is his lasting legacy?
8: He got sick at a time when the money was running out. And it got harder and harder to book the Ellington Band. And Ellington was worn out. It's so sad. And, of course, what it was was cancer. Duke knew what he had. Nobody was trying to hide it from him. To see film of those last appearances, there was a a TV tribute that Quincy Jones produced, and you can see film of Ellington. And he looks old. He looks old and tired and sad. And then it was all gone. We've talked a lot about the flaws in his personality. There aren't too many geniuses who don't have deeply flawed personalities. Like most of the geniuses I've known, his highest priority was his work. He wanted to be able to do the work every day to show up for the gig to write music, and he was willing to subordinate anything and anybody to that. And as a result, when you go back and look at his life, you cannot help but be struck by how unattractive certain aspects of it are. He was an opportunist. He was unscrupulous. I don't know that he was a man I would have wanted to work for. But if you worked for him, you were working for a genius. And a genius whose gifts included the gift of being able to make everybody who played with him sound better. A gift of being able to take the little fragments of melody that they tossed off and turn them into compositions that that people still sing 50 and 60 and 70 years later. He was a giant. That is exactly what he was.
0: And you've been listening to Terry Teachout on the astounding life of Duke Ellington, American composer and visionary. what a complicated life. As Terry said, the life of an absolute giant in American music and jazz. Go to Amazon and get Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington by Terry Teachout. It's a terrific read, an important one too. Duke Ellington's story here